I think we would all agree that we live in a visual culture. Uh, we, set, uh, we see it in the amount of time that we spend on our appearance, at least most of, most of us. Uh, how much you know, we prize and praise the beautiful people in our culture is obvious. We see it in our social media and even how we engage in our different forms of media. You know, they've shown that statistically it's overwhelming that when images accompany media, uh, the amount of views it gets skyrockets. So, for instance, uh, articles that have an image included now get 94% more views than those that have no image at all. Uh, if you include a photo or video in a press release, it increases views by over 45%. And even in e-commerce sites, we are told that 67% of consumers say the quality of the product image is of the utmost importance in selecting a product. It outranks ratings, reviews, and specifications that are written in the ad. And this cultural value shapes us tremendously as a people, whether we know it or not. It shapes what we value. It shapes who we value. It shapes where we spend our time and how we spend our money. I mean, imagine growing up only a few hundred years ago. Uh, you'd have never seen a photograph of yourself. And if you didn't have exorbitant wealth, you would have never seen any kind of pictorial version of yourself unless you could hire someone that could literally come and paint a portrait of you or your family. Medical historians say that before the invention of the photograph, there are no recorded cases of an eating disorder. So just think about how that shaped us as a people. You know, the photograph arises, we can see ourselves, and then how we view ourselves against how we view other people also is on the rise, and it causes all sorts of different, of different dysmorphia. I mean, one of the most famous examples of the power of visual media came to us in 1960, in the presidential debate of that year, when then-Vice President Richard Nixon was debating with then-Senator John F. Kennedy, the first time there would be a, te a televised presidential debate. Prior to the debate, JFK wisely and somewhat shrewdly made sure that he spent much time in the sun so that he would have a tan on his face. And his team, when he came to the studio, they, though they first received, uh, refused to receive makeup uh, for the televised uh, uh, debate, eventually did have their own team do JFK's makeup prior to the event. Where on the flip side, we learned that Richard Nixon had suffered some sort of ailment during the week, was not feeling all that well, but he would not be uh, you know, denied his chance to debate, so he showed up, and when he was offered makeup, he uh, refused it, uh, and the visual that the nation saw during this debate was stark, a pale, tired, dare I say, uglier man, uh, with a five o'clock shadow versus a vibrant-looking, handsome, straight-toothed, tanned man. And when those who watched the debate were asked who won, there was an overwhelming majority that had seen the debate televised that said, surely, John F. Kennedy had won. Well, as surprising as that may be, or maybe not surprising, what is surprising is that many people didn't own televisions or were not watching the debate on television, instead listened to it on the radio. And when those who listened to it on the radio were polled, it was a landslide 
in favor of Richard Nixon and his points being taken in the debate. And that debate changed the way that we have chosen our leaders ever since. That what they look like is nearly or maybe even more important than the substance that they deliver. While media surely has exasperated this issue profoundly, visual media didn't create the problem. It only exposed it. It only ignited it. It's like saying, you know, riches somehow created greed. No, riches only gave greed a place to, you know, uh, uh, go, go to town and get busy. It's as old as time, this problem. Man judges things by his eyes, by the appearance of a thing. And as creatures, we are ever striving with this knowledge then to present ourselves well. We want our resume to appear notable. We want to look attractive. We want to come across with some sort of gravitas. We want to present ourselves to our world or our social media world as acceptable or better or enviable or beautiful. Whatever we feel is the highest ranking virtue, we want it to be seen and noted. But what is interesting in our text this morning, we are told that our maker is not like this. God does not see things the way that we say things. God doesn't judge you, interestingly enough, on your looks or your CV or where you got your diploma from or the size of your bank account or the amount of followers you do have or don't have. He has another metric altogether, and that is what we want to find at least in part in our text this morning. So we want to see it under three headings this morning, a God who sees, how man sees, and then God's sight revealed. Notice the God who sees. In these first verses, we are immediately reminded that God has rejected Saul from being king over Israel. It's a fascinating choice of words by the author because, of course, when they cried out for a king, Saul told Sam, uh, God told Samuel, stop moping, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. And this God who was once rejected by the people for the sake of this king is now rejecting the chosen king of the people. But no sooner has he rejected him than we are told that God has seen a king. And that's literally what we're told. Our text tells us God has provided for himself a king. Literally, the, the, the root word in Hebrew is God has seen for himself, or he's going to see to it that there will be a king in Israel. And that root word for seeing is all over our text this morning. It's used six times in the verses that we have read. It is used nine times in the chapter. It really is the key word. And what God has seen, he's relaying, interestingly enough, to his prophet, the seer, the prophet Samuel. And we're told that Samuel knows where to go. He's supposed to go to Bethlehem. At least that's what God's vision has shown him. He even knows which house to go to. Go to Jesse's house. Visit him. He even knows that it'll be one of Jesse's sons who will be the future king of Israel, and he knows that he's to bring his anointing oil with him. That horn that Hannah sang about is to travel to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons. He knows a lot about what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't know one key piece of information, who exactly it is that God has seen as king. And so we're left kind of hanging as readers. Okay, God has seen a king. He's reported to his prophet, go find the king. But neither the prophet nor us as readers know who he will find when, once he gets there. And it's how that son is revealed, that king, will reveal much to us. It will reveal to, much of, to us of, of the nature of man. It's going to reveal to us the nature of God. And it's going to reveal to us the nature of God's man, of God's king. 
So the slow revelation of this son, this king to be presented, tells us who we are, tells us who God is, and it tells us a lot about God's king. And so Samuel is told to go, but he immediately expresses hesitation. Uh, you know, he says, you want me to take the anointing oil, right, to anoint a new king, um, just one small problem, the, the old king's still alive and has a job. He, he hasn't retired, uh, and he's still sitting on the throne. You know, this is the very opposite of what Neil Young was singing about, that the king is gone and he's not forgotten. Uh, this king is not gone, uh, but God has forgotten him. He's done with him. And so Samuel is concerned. He says, you know, he might not be so kind to the idea of me anointing another king while he still thinks he's in charge. And so fearing the potential ramifications, God literally gives him a cover story. And that may disturb you uh, as a Christian, uh, but it's going to happen a lot in these scenarios when life is on the line and a false king is on the throne, uh, that there will be these interesting acts of deception and warfare. And God gives this cover story of, we'll go and make a sacrifice. Now notice he's not lying. He will make a sacrifice, but he's not there to make a sacrifice. He's there to make a king. And what is in an interesting use of an eye for an eye, you'll notice that Saul has been rejected. And while he was rejected, he was rejected because when God told him to put everything to death among the Amalekites, from the sheep and the oxen all the way to the king, and Saul refused to do it, notice what his cover story was. I've kept these animals to make a sacrifice to God. And so now God, while tearing away his kingdom from him, comes with a cover story. We're just here to make a sacrifice as he's ultimately revoking his throne in his midst. And so we know that God has seen a king for himself. He's chosen someone else. And now we go to meet him. And what do we learn? We learn how man sees. So notice in verses 4 and following, Samuel approaches Bethlehem, the elders are immediately dismayed. You know, you have an unannounced prophet arriving in town, and you don't know what to think. This could be good news or bad news, usually not good, interestingly enough. Uh, and the last time we've seen Saul, he literally is just hacking a man into chunks. That's the last time we've seen him. He took the king of the Amalekites and dismembered him in front of everyone who was watching. And so they nervously ask, like, uh, you, you come in peace or like, uh, should we be running? And so he says, I'm come peaceably. I'm here to make a sacrifice. He tells them to consecrate themselves and says, also, we need to grab Jesse's household and they need to consecrate themselves. And as soon as they approach, Samuel sees Eliab, the eldest. And we're not given a description of him except by what we can infer from both Samuel's response and then God's rebuke that follows. He's clearly impressive. We know at least he's the oldest and likely he is tall because of what God says. Enough for Samuel to literally begin, you know, unstrapping his horn of oil, you know, and uh, thinking like, all right, let's get this job done. We found the king. I see him right here. And God rebukes him and says, uh, don't look on the appearance or on the height, this key theme that's come all through the book of Samuel. Don't look at how tall he is because I have rejected him. And that's fairly harsh for someone who never even thought they were 
accepted <laughs> or someone who wasn't even trying to get the job. God says, I rejected him. It's one thing to say, I haven't chosen him, but God uses the same language concerning Eliab as he has already for Saul above. I have rejected him. I mean, imagine young men, you know, one of the young ladies approaching you today and saying, just so you know, I refuse to marry you. Um, and you didn't even know that was on the table. Uh, but at least you know where you stand, right? Uh, this guy didn't even know he was up for election, much less rejection, and God has used these words. But you notice he's using it because of the way that Samuel has fallen into the same trap as the people previously, who when they saw Saul, saw that he was head and shoulders above the rest, and they were attracted to him for that reason. Well, Samuel here sees Eliab and sees all that the outward appearance shows, and he says, he looks like a king. And God says, just like Saul is rejected on the basis for why he's chosen, so this man is also rejected. God's choice is not based on resume or stature. And so he says, you know, you, the problem with men is that you see with your eyes. And according to our text, that is not a safe guide. That your eyes are not a safe guide to measure what is good and true and beautiful, or at least what is uh, beautiful and good to God. And God says, man looks on the appearance, but God looks on the heart. So Samuel goes down the line, not son number one, I have rejected him. Abinadab, the Lord has not chosen him. Shema, the Lord has not chosen. Four, not chosen. Five, not chosen. Six, not chosen. Seventh, the final son, the number seven. This has to be the one, but even this surprises us. This complete number, we come to him and we hear Samuel say, the Lord has chosen none of these. But even in the seventh son, we are being taught the lesson that the way that we think, the way that we see, is not the same way that God sees. And so we see God's sight revealed here at the end of our text. You'll notice Samuel is plenty confused. He knows God's word that one of Jesse's sons for certain is going to be anointed king. He's been presented with seven sons, and we have no king. And instead of doubting God's word, he does the right thing and doubts Jesse and says, uh, I'm doing the math. You have to have more sons, right? Do you have another son? And notice Jesse's response. He says, well, yeah. I mean, there's the youngest. But, you know, he's out in the field watching the sheep. I mean, we are about to be introduced to arguably the most notable figure of the whole Old Testament. One of the clearest pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, one of the most famous men of all of Israel's history. He takes up more real estate in the Old Testament than any other character. He's named in the New Testament profusely. We sing his songs even to this very day, and this is how we're going to be introduced to him. I mean, consider that. You know, let the, the weight of the story and the way that it's being told actually help you understand that the David we have come to know is not the David his family knew. He was literally an afterthought to his own father, a nobody, even in his own family. 
I mean, our first peek at our beloved King David is his absence, not his presence. He's absent from the scene. He is absent from his father's mind. He's literally an afterthought in his own family. And this landmark day in this family's history, think of it. You have the prophet of Israel coming and saying, I need your whole household. Come and gather for a sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. Get ready. And he gathers all the family, but you're so unimportant and so unrecognized in the family. They say, just leave David. He'll be fine. We need someone to tend the sheep anyway. You know, this is, you know... Uh, Cinderella way before Cinderella ever existed. The pacing and the story are written this way to reinforce the theological point that's being made. David is the least of his family. He is not great. In fact, we don't even know his name yet. His name will not be revealed in this text until the Spirit rushes upon him. Then we'll learn like, oh, it's David. And had we not known, we would have never guessed that that's who we were meeting. So Samuel says, well, go get him. No one's sitting down for this uh, sacrificial meal until he's here. And here he comes, you know, he's entering the scene. We've just been told God doesn't care about outward appearance. He doesn't think like men think. And strangely, after all of this rebuke about appearance, we get a full description of his appearance, that he's ruddy and he has beautiful eyes and he's handsome. Uh, and that's very weird. Right? God doesn't care, and here comes beautiful little David with his pretty eyes. I mean, not too shabby, it seems. I mean, what does that even mean, ruddy? You've probably heard that. It, it literally is, is rendered red. It's the same word that's used to describe Esau, interestingly enough. It's hard to know what it's speaking of. Does David have red hair? Does he have a red complexion? Uh, does he have darker skin, as some surmise? Uh, You get a little clue from Goliath's interaction with him. Goliath says this of David, You are only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Notice, even Goliath mentions this ruddiness and the fact that he's handsome, but he's using it as a way to insult him. He says, you know, basically, he's cute, but he's not full-grown or impressive, Uh, You know, he isn't physically imposing. He's not a threatening character. You know, you've had Dwayne the Rock Johnson as your king for all these years, and now you're being introduced to to Justin Bieber. It's like, well, yeah, you know, he's a handsome guy, but when you're looking for a king, he might not be your first choice, but he sings, you know. Uh, He's a nice poet. And God says when you, this younger, fresh-faced kid walks onto the scene, Behold your king. And the point is, David is nothing when we look at him in light of the task that is being granted to him and the office that he's being anointed for, but not in God's sight. This is a man after God's own heart, we are told in chapter 13. And we hear that and we normally, you know, do this Uh, interesting play on words where it's like, God loves the way David's heart is. But it's not David's heart that's under consideration. It's God's heart. This is a man after my heart. My heart is set on this man. And so we're not learning, if you will, about the insides of David. We're learning about the insides of God 
and his choice of David. I mean, this whole text is about choice. He is not chosen. He is not chosen. None of these are chosen. Behold, David is the chosen one. God rejects the big and the impressive, and he calls the small and the seemingly insignificant and forgotten. I mean, this is the way it has always been in biblical history. Since Isaac was chosen over Ishmael, since Jacob was chosen over Esau, since Israel was chosen from the far more impressive nations which surrounded her, God chooses the foolish and the weak, the things that are nothing to bring to naught the wise and the strong and those that think they're something. But then we're left with that weird verse 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so, which is it? I mean, is it God's heart that chose David? Or did God's heart set on David because he saw David's heart? And he's like, David's got a great heart compared to, for instance, Saul which in many respects is true. God does look on the heart, you know, and we get all warm and fuzzy, right? We hear these verses, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, you know, and the older we get, the more we like that verse, you know. We're so grateful that it's not about the outward appearance. But really, I mean, is that good news? God only looks at your heart. So what's in there? I mean, he looks all the way to the corners. I mean, this is when we're grateful to be known by our appearance and the show that we display for everybody else. Because even the things that come out that are ugly are not nearly as the things that are inside that never get revealed to the people we know. But God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He sees to the very depths of our heart. So how is it then that he sees David and he says, that's my guy? Is it because David's got a wonderfully clean heart. I mean, David himself cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And there are many texts in the Old Testament, and I need you to hear this, that will speak very bluntly about David's righteousness, his covenant faithfulness. It will speak of him as if he's almost done no wrong whatsoever. It will categorize him in this way of holiness that makes us look at him as a beacon of light among the nation. And then there are a lot of other verses about David that show that this is a conflicted man. I mean, some of the most horrific things we'll see in the Bible take place at this man's hands. I mean, I'm not even just talking about the ones that are well known. We know that he stole one of his employees, his faithful employee's wife, had an affair with her, and then sent that employee off to be killed so he could cover it up and not be found out. And that's not the worst of it. I mean, when we are introduced to David, when he's going to meet his first wife, Saul's daughter, Saul says, yeah, you can have my daughter. Bring to me a hundred Philistine foreskins. And the text says, and this pleased David. And so he brought 200 Philistine foreskins. And I don't know if you know, but Philistines aren't just, you know, handing over their foreskins willingly. Um, This David will actually hide out for a time amongst the Philistines as a vassal to them, and to keep his cover will massacre whole towns so he is not found out. 
In fact, on his own deathbed, his last request to his son, as he pulls out a list of people he still has grudges against, and he says, I want you to kill them all. The last words he speaks are, don't let his gray hair go down except in blood. So is it that God looks at David's heart and is pleased with what he finds there and therefore he chooses him as king? We learn from David two things very clearly, what we learn from this story. What made David's heart acceptable to God was that David was God's choice. That's it. What made David's heart acceptable to God was that God, David was God's choice and he was going to make David's heart acceptable. I mean, as Luther says in his own writings, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. He didn't find in David a pure heart. He created in David a clean heart. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it, but not so with God. He loves something and he makes it pleasing. I mean, the key to this whole text is that God first saw a king, that he had chosen a man after his own heart, and therefore he was going to make this man's heart pleasing to him. When God saw David, in one sense, he saw nothing. And, it, and in one sense, that was David's greatest attribute. That's what he had to offer. Like Luther says, what we offer in salvation is sin and resistance. What David offered was his nothingness. And God said, that's unimpressive enough. I choose him. And in one sense, that will be a wonderful grace for David will come to know that he needs God. Even when he comes to deliver the nation, he won't be confident in himself, but he'll be confident in the God that's behind him. He needs God's help both in his reign, but also he needs God's help in his mercy time and time and time again. The other thing we see is that when God looks on the heart, that God does, does desire a king. He desires a people who love and serve him wholly. That's why you have those verses in the Old Testament that show David as the quintessential righteous man. Oh, how I love your law, O oh Lord. Read all of Psalm 119. Read Psalm 1 and 2. You know, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked or in the counsel of the ungodly or sits in the seat of the scornful, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord and on that law he meditates day and night. David is a man who loves God's law. And when we see him, if you will, abstracted, we say, what a righteous man. And then we see him in real life and we see he's not just a righteous man. But he is showing us ahead of time exactly what God wants. He wants a a king who loves and obeys Torah no matter what, who will serve him all the days of his life, who won't turn aside to the right or to the left, and because of that, he will be blessed all the days of his life. But we see David de definitely loving God's law, obeying God's law. He says it's better, if you will, to obey than to sacrifice. He believes that, and we get that with David sometimes, but we also get a David who breaks God's law to pieces and leaves us and God wanting and needing so much more from a king. And that, why, that is why, years from now, 
in the town of David, born in Bethlehem to the house of David, would come a Savior. David's own Savior. The one who would come and cleanse David so thoroughly that God could look on David and say, I don't care about the outward appearance. I care about what's in your heart and see nothing but righteousness there. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. This Jesus who comes has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. There's nothing that Jesus would have shown you by his physical appearance that would have attracted you to him. He wouldn't have had an amazing social media page that would have said, you know, this is something I can get behind. And when you finally saw him on the cross, you would not have only disliked him, you would have had distaste for him. It was repulsive what happened to him. And it testified against him in every possible way. This one is not righteous. He is not good. He is not lovely. He is not to be followed. And in fact, this very day as this sermon is being preached, you would have no taste for Jesus had God not given it to you. And the only reason he gave it to you is because he set his love upon you, because God's heart, before time, said, I want that one. And I will make him love that which is lovely to me, not because they want it, because I want it for them. So he sent Jesus so that he who foresaw us beforehand in love could now see Jesus Christ in this life when he comes up from that baptism and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son, and who I am well pleased and not have to squint and not have to leave out the footnotes and not have to leave out the rest of the history. He could literally look at Jesus and on that resurrection and by that resurrection, declare to the world, I am always pleased with this one. And it's through that one that God the Father now views you. That is how he sees you. He is pleased with your heart because in your heart, he doesn't see all the dark, ugly things that you see. At least that's not how he identifies you. He knows them. But that is not how he views you. He views your heart as he views the heart of his own son. And in it, he is well pleased. When God looked at David whom he chose, when he was pleased, he saw Jesus. And when God looks at you whom he chose, he sees nothing but Jesus. And so when the scripture tells us, don't judge by appearance, it would caution you and exhort you even today. Don't even judge yourself by appearance. Because that is not how God sees you. You know your heart, and it's horrifying. And if the people sitting next to you knew your heart, they would scoot over a seat. But God knows it all, and he is not repulsed, because when he sees you, he doesn't see as a man sees. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of a king who always delighted in his law and gave his life for his subjects, that they might be risen to new, life, to new life in him and be clothed with his regal righteousness from this time forth, even forevermore. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.